Counselors, approach the bench. I have no further witnesses, Your Honor. Curiosity, I'm allowing this freak show to continue. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. Overruled. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Oh, hey. Welcome to Movie Mistrial. The podcast where we examine the IMDb Top 250 and argue for or against the movies being on that list. My name is Johannes. And I am Raji. Today we're talking about the number five film on that list. The quintessential court drama, 12 Angry Men. 12 Angry Men, released in April 1957, starring Henry Fonda and Jack Klugman, with an IMDb rating of 9.0 out of 10. Let's figure out uh, who's going to be on which side. Let's do that. All right, Raji. What's it going to be, heads or tail? I'm going to go with heads. Heads. The easier conversation to have is to argue for this film. But I'm going to argue against this film. Okay. All right. I, I, I see. I see you doing the <laughs> the victory dance. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was having a little hard time to to find bad things about this. So thank uh, you. <laughs> no problem. I, I I'm fine with arguing against it. Very good. Very good. Looking forward to the the conversation then. All right. So I guess we, before we start, let's uh, let's hear a little synopsis. Yep. Following the closing arguments in the murder trial, the 12 members of the jury must deliberate, with a guilty verdict meaning death for the accused, an inner city teen. As the dozen men try to reach a unanimous decision while sequestered in the room, one juror, Henry Fonder, casts considerable doubt on elements of the case. Personal issues soon rise to the surface, and conflict threatens to derail the delicate process that will decide one boy's fate. The witness will address this court as judge or your honor. Ladies and gentlemen, who are going to be the judge today? And there's no movie more apt for a judge than this one. Today I'm going to be arguing against the movie 12 Angry Men. Considered a masterclass in acting and character development, this movie is more of an example of how a system can be manipulated if one charismatic character brings chaos into the deliberation. While there's a case for reasonable doubt, I was extremely angry watching juror number eight manipulate the room and twist the idea of reasonable doubt on its head. I watched inexplicably as the characters began to change their minds because of this chaos agent. And I think this movie is a case of great characters making bad jurors. Dear judges, I think this is a very weird interpretation of the movie that we've all have seen and loved. Uh, I think the, plaintiff is arguing here that this is a manipulation of reasonable doubt is it's very strange because it's the strength and the heart of the movie to tell a story of people coming into in, into a situation of being a judge uh, of being a juror with preconceived notions and then not being convinced but being led to open up their minds and see the the reasonable doubt for themselves and then flip and uh, at the end finding the uh, defendant not guilty and i think it's a, kind of a bizarre represent a, a bizarre interpretation of the movie thank you very much for your introduction <laughs> i think that i'm gonna go straight to some of the points that i have you mentioned that uh the idea of reasonable doubt being a bizarre interpretation of the movie we got to see there's no better movie to start with a statement like case in point 
we see Harry Fonda whip out a, a knife and place it on the table after they ask the uh, the cop outside the door to bring the knife in. And he whips out a knife and puts it on the table. And that was the turning point, the first turning point where some of the people started to have reasonable doubt. And in my mind, that is extreme manipulation. And I was watching this movie with my wife and I got really, really annoyed watching that because this guy goes into the neighborhood where he was able to buy a knife. One of the things they argued in court, and you get this from some of the conversations they had, was it was difficult to find the knife and it was one of a kind. And this guy goes in, brings it out from his pocket, slams it on the table and says, it's not one of a kind, it's basically there's another one. And that creates a reasonable doubt in every single but every single person's mind that somebody else could have committed the crime. If I was going to interpret what juror number eight, who was played by Henry Fonda, was doing, was, you know, just like he took the court case that existed and then decided to create a new courtroom where he was able to convince everybody, I'm going to create a new courtroom and try to characterize the character of jury number eight. And he's the leader of the mob, and he comes into this room to try to change everybody's mind because he sees potential, crime potential in this young kid who he doesn't want executed. I just didn't enjoy watching him manipulate everyone. I knew what buttons to press because of all the characters in the film, he was the one that we knew the least about and he expected us to trust him for every single thing he said. Basically, he goes in and tries to reinterpret the court case for us, the viewer, and try to create a new courtroom where every single member of the jury uh, who was supposed to decide the court case had to play along with his version and his interpretation of the of the courtroom drama, which we never got to see. So we have to rely on this man. And I just found it very, very irritating to watch. There's, there's one correction. The first time a juror was switched was after juror number eight connected two conflicting pieces of testimony. The, um, the person across from the train and the person under the living under the scene of the crime had kind of conflicting stories and he just kind of brought it up. Uh, I also think that he never said, I know he's innocent. He always said, I don't know that he's guilty, right? He's, he always said, well, I'm not fully convinced that he did it. And he's just kind of thinking about all the pieces of evidence that were presented and bringing up the, the pieces that didn't make a lot of sense. So like I said, that the first time he argued that he cannot be certain that the, the, the person is guilty is because there's two conflicting pieces of testimony. So if there's there's something that's not adding up, then can we convict somebody for a death sentence if we're not 100% certain? And that's the whole argument uh, juror number eight makes. And his uh, interpretation of the testimony that was given was then validated by other jurors that thought about it and was like, oh yeah, you're right. You're, you're correct. I give you some of, of, of what you're saying with the knife. I think that's that's like a super gray zone, if not even like leading to uh, like dismissal of jury if they brought in their own kind of evidence. <laughs> so that it's a little, it's a little wishy-washy there. But the point he was trying to make was the the way that knife was presented was it's a very unique knife and there's only one like it's super hard to get by. And he was able to get it at some random shop in the neighborhood. And I think that was the main point to kind of invalidate the 
the argument that was made against um, the person being on trial. So that helped him flip another person. Essentially, what they do is they go through through a lot of the pieces of of testimony and evidence and try to to figure out if it makes sense. Because the third time was then the figuring out the time it takes to walk a certain amount of um, way in order to to see if one piece of the testimony makes sense, and it didn't. And then that also helped flip multiple people. So I think arguing that this is one juror that tries to corrupt a jury and tries to bring them over their side is not an accurate representation. I think he's explaining the reasonable doubt he has. And uh, by doing that, he's also helping other people getting to the point of reasonable doubt. Because at the end of the day, the stakes here is the death sentence of an 18 year old, right? So you kind of got to be careful about what you do and how you, how you proceed, I think. I think that it's important that we acknowledge that I'm not a, I don't, I think that the stakes are very high for this film. And I quite agree with you on this particular point that, you know, nobody wants to see an 18 year old uh, get the electric chair. And I'm not actually, I'm not actually arguing that the guy, the young boy should not be found innocent. I don't, I don't particularly know enough about the case for me to argue for or against the kid. But what I do know is, was the way he manipulated everyone. And I think that it's very weird to watch how he does this. I'll give you another example. When the, and thank you for the correction earlier, but I do want to point out the scene. Uh, I mean, there's only one scene, but the conversation he had with the, the broker where he was asking him about, hey, what did you do on, on Wednesday? What did you do on Tuesday? What did you do on Monday with your wife? Uh, what movie did you see? Um, and the guy was answering the questions correctly um, all the way till Monday evening when it's like, what movie did you see? And he, his mind fucked up. And he used that as a justification to prove that the boy not remembering the movie he watched was uh, something that was natural. But it's not natural. But one of the points of the film is that we never got to see the court case right and a lot of the ideas of the court case were informed by the conversations the 12 men had in the room and the way we have to go about this is we have to choose who we like in the story and then trust their version of what happened in the courtroom and jury number eight was somebody who i didn't trust because not only did he um, emotionally uh, pander to the folks that you know were in the room? He deliberately made some of them angry, and he made me angry because even watching the scenes, I got frustrated. If twelve people go into a courtroom and one person is holding off, and he creates the whole courtroom in that scene. The idea of the the glasses uh, being stuck on his on the face, which was one of the uh, the conversations he had about the old man. It's like, did you notice that he had the two spots in his eyes, and he had to be wearing glasses? And then he did the walk to test like the time it took to get from one side of the room to the other, based on photographs they had uh, in the room. Basically, redoing the court case 
in the jury room, uh, a court case we didn't get to watch. And then, you know, we see how he interacts with everybody. He's making everybody angry. He's pointing out each of the other characters' flaws and making himself feel good about that. I feel that the character of jury number eight was sent into the room to manipulate the whole court case. And I think he's an agent of chaos. And he went there to create chaos in that room. The rules of being a jury says that the only thing you should consider are the things that we discuss in courtroom. This guy created a totally new courtroom, creating assumptions that we can't back up. He basically created reasonable doubt in everybody's head. And I guess the kid got away with it. I am not entirely sure this is a valid case. I really found it very disturbing to watch. Watch. Huh. Fascinating. Because I think what we've seen in this movie is 90 minutes of uh, intense due diligence on the case that was presented to the jury. And like I said, the, the, the point is that they are deliberating over somebody's life. And I think it's only fair to give it some time and do the due diligence of validating and, and arguing about the evidence that was presented to them and and arguing if if the evidence checks out and makes sense. And as it turns out, a lot of the evidence doesn't make any sense. If you have one piece of testimony telling you they saw something happen while a train was going on, like was going in between the buildings they saw it from, and then you have another person testifying that they heard specific sentences being said while the train was going on, like right next to them, that that's something that doesn't make sense. So I think just bringing that up and saying, hey, this kind of doesn't check out, like, are there any other pieces of evidence that don't check out? Uh, I think that's, that's very reasonable to do as a juror. The thing that's only fair for the person that's uh, being accused of murdering someone that somebody's doing that due, due diligence and doing everything and they can to make sure that they arrive at a conclusion that is as true to what was presented as possible. So I think the, the, the way juror number eight was able to, to lead people to look at the evidence again. And I don't think he was necessarily telling them, hey, look, this doesn't make sense, but he was just kind of displaying the facts again. And oftentimes you would find, oh, yeah, this kind of doesn't make sense. This this doesn't work, right? Like uh, the, the, the thing you said with the glasses, everybody who wears glasses kind of knows these indentations happen. You know, telling somebody who wears glasses in that case, it's like, hey, wait a minute, what did you do just there? Like, that's exactly what that witness did, but they weren't wearing glasses. Why would they do that? Right. And just kind of pointing out like, okay, so if they wear glasses, like their testimony also does make sense uh, because they weren't able they, they couldn't have been able to see potentially, I think there, there's some flaws in that logic because not everybody like cannot see anything if they don't wear glasses. Like I wear glasses, but I can see fine. It's not a perfect uh, argument there, but I think uh, it, it just tells us like the, that, that, uh, witness was potentially uh, misconstruing the facts and you cannot convict somebody on on the potential of somebody saying something that was not true so i'm going to continue on my point about the assumptions that he is making 
one of the points he made in the film, and I think I mentioned this earlier, was that walk he did. Because he says it took about 45 seconds to walk from your bed all the way to the door to open the door till you can see the kid running down the staircase. And then he said the old man came into the courtroom and he was limping. And he made the assumption that at the point the crime happened, the old man was limping. So he puts everybody into this elaborate plan where he limps and tries to get to the door. No, but none of them actually know how far the door is. They're just looking at the picture. And then this guy uses an inaccurate uh, measurement to try to show how long it would take for him to get up from bed to the door and to open the door just to see who is running down the staircase. I don't agree. What that, if the, I, 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 it, it was not, it was not just a picture. It was a, a floor plan with uh, measurements on it. So there was a representation of the, the dimensions and the, the length of the hallway and all that on that floor plan. So he was able to, to kind of guesstimate that. I, I can see that just having one person do that, uh, was probably flawed. Like everybody should have done that and then kind of find a median time of that would, would probably would have been the more accurate way of trying to test this theory out but it seemed like it it was enough for everybody in the room i'm glad uh you've used the word flawed twice so it seems like my arguments are getting true <laughs> not really I, i'm just just pointing out there there would have been a better way to do that experiment uh to to get better results the advantage jury number eight had was that you had the sports guy who wanted to go and watch his sports you had people who were looking to get out of the room and you had the bully guy who was kind of abrasive and made people get off his side because of his abrasive nature. But I don't think that in a real courtroom, the the stuff that he was doing would have worked. Because number one, it was never established when the crime happened. The crime could have happened two years before, a year before, six months before. You don't know when this guy got the limp. It could have happened a day before, a week before two hours before the court case. You don't know whether the guy is walking with a limp or not at the time the crime happened. And you don't know how fast he is. So you have a situation where jury number eight is reenacting the scene of the victim running down the staircase and how the old man reacted to it with flawed arguments. And everybody's going, huh, wow, that makes absolute sense. I feel like, oh, reasonable doubt now. Uh, I am, it's six and six. And I was just going, why is everybody listening to jury number eight? He's obviously a plant. He's obviously a plant. And it really made me angry. I just felt like this kind of manipulation, it was so obvious to watch. And the four characters that held up the, that held off the longest, we watched them slowly lose their case because of peer pressure. And I just feel... Like jury number eight, he didn't give enough of a compelling argument that everybody who watched the court case, 11 people came out of that courtroom and said he was guilty. Of that 11, let's say four of them were sure. The remaining of them were not sure. There were many times they said this should be a hung jury. And I think that probably that should be where the, the, the case ended if he was so unsure. But the way he interpreted interpreted reasonable doubt, everything, every single court case that you can have has reasonable doubt. And the fact that all the other jurors allowed him to create a reenactment 
of the crime scene in that room is a flawed argument for reasonable doubt. And I just feel like that made me irritated. Hmm. I feel like as a jury, you owe it to the the person that's being accused to do everything you can to make sure that you come to the proper verdict. And it's not like reenacting the the time it takes from one of the witnesses from bed to, to the door. It, it's not the only piece of evidence that seems to be flawed in, uh, in this case. Like I said, the, the knife was misrepresented as being rare. Uh, the the audible cues don't make sense with the train. The big argument that uh, the person said, I, I will kill you, I'm going to kill you, is not a really big piece of evidence because people say that all the time. You know, the way the knife was used uh, was wrong for the type of knife. The eyeglass thing, too, it's just a little piece. So it's not, it's not like there, there was one big hole in the argument uh, that the the person is guilty i think there were many little holes and it's it's very reasonable to say there's not enough here to convict this person and to convict this person to get the death penalty because it's not a solid case there's too much that doesn't add up and i think that's that's all this this movie tries to to do is kind of due diligence and at the end of the day i think this is more a tale of racism than anything because it's always these people in the slums of course he's guilty and you see like the last jurors that are left they're very staunchly in the uh, in that camp of like oh these people of course they're guilty they live like animals and i think juror number eight does not go into this uh, jury room with that preconceived notion he has an open mind and he looks at the evidence of face value and just sees that there are flaws and he makes the the proper case and the proper arguments for the defendant in this case and uh, gives him a fair shot and like he's he's not going in and looking at the the living conditions the defendant was living under or where he's coming from or the family and all that and uh, I I think it's very successful in, in that. One of the other things that I found um, very annoying uh, about the film was that while they had the discussion, they never focused on the crime. And I think I, I get what you're trying to say, but the thing about it is you're making some assumptions about juror number eight um, in this film. If your assumption is that juror number eight is a you know, perfect juror and everybody uh, can totally understand things from his perspective, everybody else in the room is flawed, then I totally understand how you could see him as such a good character and a strong character witness for how the court case went because you have the assumption that he's good and he probably doesn't lie uh, because of the way he presents himself. But for me, I never trusted him from the very beginning. And the way he talked made it seem to me um, like he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what kind of buttons to press. And I think that moment at the very beginning of the film where he's standing by the window while everybody is sitting down was him planning 
he's tacted. The craziest part of this film was that all they did was attack the witnesses and attack the attorneys. And that was one of the things that he put in the head of all the jurors uh, from the very beginning when he said that I would have gotten a better juror, uh, a better attorney um, if I was going to, if I knew this was going to be a life or death case, I would have gotten a better attorney because the attorney doesn't seem like he is looking out for the kid as much. Um, and he put that idea in everybody's head and then he slowly interrogated what the attorney did, what the witnesses did, but he never interrogated what the kid did and all of the conversations they had. And thank God the bully was in the room because the bully made more sense to me than the guy uh, because the bully was like, yo, this guy is just putting ideas in your head. And I, I ha another tactic he used against the bully was just trying to tell everybody that this guy, he's too emotional. You're a bleeding heart. He kept using that idea, that tactic on him. So at the very end of the film, I think that the only reason why he changed his mind was because he was like, oh God, I guess I'm a bleeding heart. This movie is just based on where you see the characters at the very beginning. And if you believe the character of Henry Fonda, who is played during number eight, is the good, the godlike character who everybody uh, can relate to, then yes, I can understand why this movie is good. He definitely does prove a point. Maybe the character, maybe there is reasonable doubt in this case. But when I saw him, I didn't see that. I just saw a manipulative guy who was able to take control of the room by manipulating every single member of the team of jurors and convince them by first manipulating the most, the easier ones, the ones who wanted to leave the room by staying as long as possible. Because the first thing he said was, if you're going to convict a guy and send him to his death chair, I think we should at least give it an hour uh, of discussions to make sure that we may come to the right decision. And I think that is a fair point. But if you look at it from the perspective of how I see the character, I think that he was just trying to get the spots guy on his side by letting them stay as long as possible so that he can uh, change his mind out of frustration. And the guy who was really angry with the sportsman who came in and said, why did you change your mind? This is a real case. If you stand by what you, if you stay by what you stand by, what you believed at the very beginning, you should stick to that. I think he was speaking truth. And uh, I just feel like the idea of reasonable doubt was just turned on its head in this movie. And uh, I, it made me angry. A little stumped because I've, 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 I feel like we've seen two completely different movies here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the difference between the two of us is our portrayal of that character in jury number eight, juror number eight. And I think that if you go in with the assumption that juror number eight is a fair character who, uh, who you can take his word for, then your idea of the movie is absolutely valid. But when I saw him, I didn't see that. It just seemed like he was trying to manipulate everyone. And he just kept trying to re redo the court case in the room. And he was just throwing in assumptions. Uh, I've, I've lived by the L train. It takes 10 minutes for one uh, card to go off the screen. 
if it takes 10 minutes for one cop uh, the stuff to go off the screen and he stabs the guy and the body falls to the ground how could he have heard it but he's living underneath the he could have heard the body hit the ground but he kept talking about the sound the strain makes and he eventually convinced enough people to think about the way the sound the, the sound of the train uh well but, but, uh, but what this, i'm saying is he's not convincing anybody he's he uh, there's other people in the room that that have experiences living or working near that train and they confirm yes it's very loud and it's very hard to to hear anything when the train is going by and i think it's 10 seconds not 10 minutes but that's beside the point so it's it's not like he's saying hey this doesn't make any sense he's just like so the train is very loud right like have you has anybody had any experience with this like mm-hmm. because not everybody has because our, you could argue that a lot of these the people on the jury probably do not live near the train, right? Because it's like the, a, a lot of the the backgrounds that we learn from the jury seems to be the backgrounds of more of a privilege, right? It's just further kind of going into kind of the this underlying racism that happens there of, of like or like privilege versus the poor people that live near trains, right? And, yeah. and and the thing he's just kind of evoking that like, hey, does anybody have experience with this? like just to have at least a discussion about like does this this story check out does this make sense and i i think had people said yeah we've been near trains but it's not that bad like you you could totally hear things then the the doubt juror number eight had like they, they would have convinced him eventually right but like i said it's it's not just one thing that there's so many things that don't check out and he's just uh, trying to have a conversation about it to 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 at least confirm it for himself is like, Hey, I'm, am I doing the right thing or not? Like these things don't make sense to me, but maybe other people like having an, another set of eyes to this, maybe we'll figure out what, what the truth is here. And if, if the story that was presented to us during the trial doesn't make sense, then we cannot convict this person of murder. Okay. Um, I, I, I get your point. I think we'll talk about it in the general discussion. Yep. But I do think that the moment he brought out that knife and put it on the table, that was the call for a mistrial. Because how how on earth did he get that knife? Nobody understands why he did it. Why he said that he went to the neighborhood and went to a gas station or a station there and bought that knife, uh, and that that was enough to prove that the knife was not as rare as possible. But we don't know this character long enough to be able to say is this real or not? And I think that the big flaw of the film is is that exact thing. It's just, do you believe juror number eight? And I didn't believe him from the very beginning. And it just seemed flawed. All right. Well, I think it's upon the the listener to decide uh, who who's on the right here. Uh, I th- I think so too. So let us know what you think. But I, I think we can have a general discussion about the film, and uh, I think that maybe in the general discussion, some of the points uh, will become a little clearer. Yep. All right. See you on the other end. Sounds good. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. Okay. <laughs> Controversial opinion today. <laughs> <laughs> One of the the big flaws you can ask me in the argument was, did I like the film or not? Do I think it deserves to be in the position it it is? I would say yes. 
controversial, right? <laughs> um, the fact that the movie made me angry, irrespective of what the intent of the film is, it was able to draw an emotion from me. And if my view of the film is the, is the correct view, which is most likely not the correct view, but just my interpretation of what I saw in the film, then the director did a great job. If your perspective of the film um, is the correct perspective, uh, then the director did a great job. Um, I think the movie is good, irrespective. And I think one of the things that I would give the movie a lot of props for is the pacing, the conversations. It never got boring. And in, at no point did I forget, did it seem like this was just a movie about 12 guys talking in a room? The camera movements were great. The conversations were interesting to listen to. And the perspectives were quite fascinating. Unlike The Dark Knight, I do think the movie deserves to be where it's supposed it is in the top 250. But my perspective of the film is slightly different. And the way I interpreted it is different from yours, uh, which makes it very, I think it cut, kind of got you off guard. Uh, and I think that worked in my favor based on the discussions. Yeah. But I still think the movie is a great film. Like, to me, it's a weird interpretation of the movie and a weird interpretation of the justice system as a whole because I feel like anybody owes... Like, if I, I was never uh, on jury duty, um, so I don't know what it's like, and I just know that America... Thank you citizens generally don't like the idea of jury duty um i tend to believe that it is a fantastic piece of democracy so i'm looking forward to be able to do it at some point and so i felt like this is a great representation of what it's like and 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 just kind of the discussions that happen and the the respect the jury should have uh, for anybody that is up for trial and and really doing the due diligence that you need to do if if somebody else's line is on the line and i think this movie is very successful in that so accusing this this movie in juror eight of of misintent uh, to me I caught me off guard because I think, like, what's the end goal here, right? Setting somebody who killed somebody else free, that kind of doesn't make sense. But the, the other way around, I feel like makes perfect sense. If you, if you, if you cannot be 100% sure that this person did this, how can you set them up for the death sentence? And I think that intent and, and kind of casting doubt makes perfect sense. Um, from a character perspective. And I think that's why I was a little stumped on that argument because I felt like it's betraying juror number eight and kind of the intentions of juror number eight. But I, I think that if you wanted to look at it from the perspective of that, then you have to, you're making assumptions about what the intent of juror number eight is. If you assume that juror number eight is the good guy in this and he's just trying to do good, then I think that everything is hunky dory what he did was great he was creating uh finding flaws in the argument but the fact that he had the knife was just bad they should have reported him um uh 
but immediately he brought out the knife. That was when I was like, this guy is definitely here to manipulate. And the way I look at jury number eight is, it's like, what if you had the Joker in the courtroom and you ask the Joker, what's your goal in this? And his goal is just to create chaos and just watch the world burn. That is basically how I saw jury number eight. Um, immediately he took that knife and put it on the table. My perspective of jury number eight just became that exact thing. And that was the reason why when we were making the discussion, that was the first point I brought out. Because the fact that he reaches in and brings out that knife shows me that this guy is here with manipulative intent. And once that became the case, I started to look at all the things he did in that film from a different perspective, watching how he talked to all the other guys. And it seemed like he always had things under control. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what buttons to press. And that's basically how I came to the conclusion. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know. I think some people are going to think it's controversial. Um, and my wife definitely thought it was controversial because she kept saying, that's not the intent of the <laughs> film. But once you see it from that perspective, it's difficult to unsee it. I just couldn't stop thinking of jury number eight as an agent of chaos for this film. And it doesn't make the film a bad film at all. It actually makes the film a lot more interesting to me um, because you're watching this guy manipulate 11 other people uh, to his perspective so that the kid can go. If you look at it from that perspective, every single thing he did in that courtroom, in that room, was justifiable. The reenactment, the constant emotional manipulation that he was doing on everybody, making people angry, trying to increase the time. There was no rule that said, hey, you have to have the arguments for one hour. But he knew that somebody wanted to go watch the sports game. So he said, let's just at least have this conversation for one hour uh, before we make a decision. Um, and his emotional outburst when they started to do other things than talk, uh, he knew exactly how to command the room. He was hot, cold, warm. I, I thought it was a magnificent performance by Henry Fonda as a manipulator. But if he's not a manipulator, then I think it's a good film <laughs> too. Don't get me wrong. It's a great film. Um, but I think even if you see him as a manipulator, watch the film again. From that perspective, watch the film and watch how jury number eight acts from the very beginning to the very end. You will see that this guy is really good at what he does. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I, I concede that uh, him bringing the knife is, is very, very iffy. And uh, I agree that probably would have been kind of a dismissal of the jury because it's like, that's not that's not kosher. You know, just kind of the lengths this person went to to, go, to get like knife is troubling if you think about it but um i i just think juror number eight has good intentions and i i personally don't see him as an agent of chaos so um but upon review it'll be interesting to see it from this perspective <laughs> i think this is what makes and i think this is one of the reasons why the movie is very good because if you look at it from my perspective and you watch the film and you see all of that happening, the movie is still very interesting. If you watch the movie from your perspective and you see the way the movie is going, the movie is very interesting. It doesn't matter what perspective you watch. 
the movie is very very good and um i think that more than the dark knight the movie deserves the position it has uh i think the movie is a very good film totally deserves its position in the imdb and i don't think there's any courtroom movie that is as interesting especially when you look at the setting and what is going on um the camera work is very simplistic but it just flows the the guys commenting on the weather and how uh the hot the room is and all of a sudden once this they got to their climax the fans started to work and things started to cool down the visual um representation of the film is magnificent uh but i the, the problem with arguing against the film is that this is the only way you can win the argument the only way you can win the argument is to look at the intent of the characters and because outside of that the movie is perfect yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think I'll, so I'll, just um, to mention the camera stuff a little bit uh i it was interesting how it started kind of from a from a almost um, surveillance camera angle when they all entered the room you know kind of like by the the fan and then towards the end like the, there's a slow shift towards like being removed closer and closer and then like it went to eye level and then went to under eye level like towards the end it was super close and i i felt that was very mm -hmm. effective because that's just tension and kind of claustrophobia in a way and i thought that was very well done and then uh, what you said with the weather change and the fan working uh did you happen to notice when that happened like at what um when what vote split we were i think it was uh wasn't this yeah. six and six so it just you know the weather's turning the the so it was like literally like you know the symbol of okay there's, there's kind of a tight change the tight yeah. change yeah so so it's it's great in that right it's so so small but it's so meaningful and i i thought it was beautiful absolutely I, I don't I don't begrudge the movie for the quality. I don't think that the movie is is bad. And the fact that the movie made me angry is a big plus for it because it means that I was totally invested in what was going on on the screen that I was easily I mean, I whether my idea is right or wrong, I was manipulated by what was going on and I could see and I wanted to know exactly who juror number eight is. Why is he acting this way? Um, and I was totally invested and I was like angry when everybody was changing their minds. I was like, why is everybody listening to juror number eight? He's here, an agent of chaos. Um, I, I thought the movie yeah. was great, but, um, I, I, I have my perspectives on the way I interpret this film. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's probably going to be a common interpretation, um, but I'm pretty sure that there will be some people who feel that this is the way it should be interpreted. I, I, I thought that Jared number eight was good until the point he brought out the knife and immediately he brought out the knife. I was like, this guy can't be good. He ha he can't be good. That was the moment where I was like, there is something fishy about this guy. And then I looked at all the things he did. It just seemed like he was manipulating everyone. Yeah. I just, you, just kind of drawing back from the previous episodes and the previous movies we watched, I think it's, it's fascinating to see the different decades of movie making at this point, right? You have Dark Knight, very modern, very polished, 
very big scope. But then you have this movie, which is the opposite of, of all of that, but it's just as effective. Absolutely. Right. And it's, it's just as powerful and just as uh, thought provoking in, in parts. Not that Dark Knight is crazy thought provoking, but you know, like uh, just, it's, it's a, uh, a tribute to the format and the medium of film. I think that, you know, the decades of film and movie making and filmmaking uh, can still bring out emotions, and I think that's that's just speaking for the for the medium as a whole, and for this movie in particular. I I, I totally agree with you. I honestly think that if I had a chance, I would probably put this movie above The Dark Knight um, because the execution, the, the story is smaller, it's more focused. The execution is simplistic but very effective, and the I don't there are no weaknesses to the film. Right now, the only thing we are arguing about is the interpretation yeah. of the right. characters. Nobody's I don't think there's anybody who is arguing about whether the movie is good or bad. We all we both agree that the movie is great, but I think that the only way you can beat this film is if you try to figure out the intent of the film and if you view the movie with that particular intent, I think that it would make the movie a little bit more mischievous to watch. So, I mean, if you ever get a chance to see it again, check it out from that perspective and see how the character moves. I, I, I think that jury number eight is a very fascinating person. And the fact that we don't know their backstory makes it even more intriguing because you have characters that who are racist. Oh, we should, I don't know. That's another thing that they talked talked about they touched on themes of themes of racism inequality you know child abuse and things of those lines and i think that the movie did a good job of effectively using the boy as a MacGuffin to explain the world that they lived in at that particular point i thought that was another effective yeah definitely thing. all right i don't have anything else i don't have anything <laughs> else to do was, this was a yeah. good conversation i really yeah. enjoyed it I was gl I was so happy that I was stumped. <laughs> <laughs> <Because> <laughs> and here I was happy. Um, <laughs> but I think that uh, I think that the conversation yep. was very interesting, and um, and ultimately we both agreed that the movie was a magnificent yep. film. Um, but it's uh, it's up to the it's up to the judge uh, to decide determine who presented the better argument. And I'm I'm more than happy to get the the knives and the stakes thrown in my direction for this one <laughs> because I I manipulated it. I I was an agent of chaos <laughs> for this conversation. So where can I think that uh, if they wanted to uh, find us, uh, where would they where would they find us? Yeah, they can find us uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under at Movie Mistrial, and then we have a website moviemistrial.com, and uh, you can also send us an email. At contact at moviemistrial.com um, we're looking forward to hearing you and let us know who you feel won the argument thank you very much for listening thank you very much and next up is Schindler's List